Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning, and we're very glad you are here. I would like to extend a special welcome to those of you visiting with us for the first time. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there is a spark of the divine in every person. It is in the spirit of that heritage that I ask you to greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here. Please say with me the words by which we light our chalice. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Our call to worship this morning is by Betty Bobo Seiden, and it's entitled, What We've Started. We are here today because we want our religious journey to include more than one holy land, more than one vision, more than one scripture. We sing praises in many styles and in many languages. We make a joyful noise to whomever nourishes and sustains all life. When we look around us here today, we see the beauty of diversity. People of various sizes and shapes, heads of different colors and textures. We see an age span of several generations. We are aware of personality differences of differences in perspective, of ancestors who represent every continent of our world. Come let us celebrate our diversity. Come let us worship together. Some people ask, what holds you guys together? You call yourselves Unitarian Universalists, and that is a lot to have in common, but then you have roots from Christianity and roots in Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Earth-based religions, humanism, what, what is at the center? And you can say, well, one of the things that is at the center for this congregation is our mission statement, and we have it written on our wall. We say it every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Rosemary Bray McNatt says, The truth is this. If there is no justice, there will be no peace. We can read Thoreau and Emerson to one another, quote Rilke and Alice Walker and Howard Thurman, and think good and noble thoughts about ourselves. But if we cannot bring justice into the small circle of our own individual lives, we cannot hope to bring justice to the world. And if we do not bring justice to the world, none of us is safe and none of us will survive. Nothing that Unitarian Universalists need to do is more important than making justice real, here where we are. Hard as diversity is, it is our most important task. Now is the time in our service when we breathe together. Let us breathe deeply into that place in our heart where we are who we are. We breathe and find a still place so that we can listen to God as we understand God or listen to our inner wisdom or just breathe in stillness.
We open our hearts to those who are suffering or ill. We open our hearts to the people of the Philippines as they struggle to recover from the cyclone. We open our hearts to those who are fearful because of financial terrors or family violence, those who are in harm's way because of war or natural disaster. We breathe on that spark of the divine that lives within us and we ask of it to illuminate our inner thoughts, to illuminate truth for us, to give us clarity. Give us the wisdom to know when to move and when to be still. When to fight and to accept. It is in this time of stillness that you are invited to light candles of joy, sorrow, or remembrance. Let us continue our meditation with the Buddhist Metta Meditation, or Loving Kindness Prayer. We say this three times. The first time is for ourselves. I'll say a line and you say it after me should you choose to. May I be free from danger. May I be mentally happy. May I be physically happy. May I have ease of well-being. The second time we say it for someone we love. May you be free from danger. May you be mentally happy. May you be physically happy. May you have ease of well-being. The third time as a spiritual stretch, we say it for someone against whom we have a resentment. May you be free from danger. May you be mentally happy. May you be physically happy. May you have ease of well-being. It's important to me to talk fairly frequently about racism, but I don't like to. One of the great things about being white is that you really don't have to pay attention to it if you don't want to. And so I have to force myself to think about it. 
I, I, um, I know that white is the norm. If I say there were these two guys walking down the street, you're going to picture white guys because if they weren't, I would have said there are these two black guys or two Asian guys walking down the street. And if I start um, this race game that Dr. Tandeka, who teaches at one of our UU seminaries in Chicago, talks about, she says, just play this little, this little game in that every time you're talking about somebody that you would have identified by their race, if they're white, just identify them as white. Just see see if it feels awkward. So you go, yeah, it's that white woman over there in the purple shirt. Or, yeah, it's that white guy sitting over there. Just do that if it's a white guy, and you'll find that you feel weird. And then you have to ask yourself, as an intelligent Unitarian Universalist who wants to learn stuff, why does that feel weird and awkward? And one of the answers is because white is the default of our culture, and any other color is the other color. See what I'm saying? People still, even in 2013, talk about flesh-colored to use the to make the col- to the color that's kind of like this. That's not flesh color. That's one or two people's flesh color. Um, that's not everybody's flesh color, but if you say flesh, everybody thinks of that kind of band-aid beige color. And so feeling the awkwardness puts you in a place where you're able to learn something just by observation. And it's something that many people try to articulate, but um, not a lot of people can, can do that well, so including me. I'm just going to stumble around in here, and um, we'll see what we can do. I do not feel guilty about this because this is not my fault. And I, and I know that guilt makes me feel stupid and, like, in despair. So I'm not going to go to the guilt place because I didn't, you know, this is, the, this is the skin color that the universe, the genetics, whatever, um, gave me. So I... I I have certain advantages because I'm a white woman. And, um, and one of them is, as I watch the news, I try to think, you know, what would, what would happen to a white woman in that circumstance? Okay? So I could go into Barney's department store and spend $2,000 on a designer handbag, and security would not meet me on the sidewalk and handcuff me while they decided whether my debit card was legit. That just is not going to happen to me because I look respectable. What goes into that? Well, we'll ask ourselves that. I can be driving along in South Georgia late at night, and a pickup truck with a Confederate flag bumper sticker on its front bumper can start. I can notice that it's behind me, and I know that odds are pretty good. If my car breaks down, those two fellows are going to help me out because of this. I love watching BBC police shows. It's not really a guilty pleasure because I don't feel guilty. (laughs) And I'm continually fascinated and flummoxed by watching the, the black cops on those shows and how differently they speak to other cops and to suspects, et cetera, 
how differently they speak from black cops on on American TV shows. I, you don't hang around real cops um, very much in my life, so I just mostly hang around them on TV. But I noticed that the black cops in BBC shows have a wider latitude to speak before they're spoken to, to be angry and express anger, to criticize uh, non-black cops. Um, I, the white cops can get into a tangle with a black cop, and it's so different from what it would be on, a, on a, an American TV show. And I can't put my finger on it, but I keep watching it, just trying to do that, trying to think, what is that? Dr. Peggy McIntosh is a professor of women's studies at Wellesley College, and so what she did was she took her skills that she had developed looking at gender differences in the culture, and she put those skills to thinking about racial differences in the culture, just for her own edification, because she uh, wants to be a smarter person and wants not to be as oblivious as she might otherwise be if she didn't try a little not to be oblivious. So, um, because if you're oblivious, you can do more damage accidentally than if you're not oblivious, and I don't like to do damage accidentally. So here are some of the things she noticed, and she said she had to write them down because otherwise she would just forget them right away because she was trained to forget them right away. These are things that are supposed to be invisible to white people. Okay, she says there are 50 things, and I'm just going to read you a couple of them, but I'll have them all on the website if you read the text of the sermon. She said, if I want to, I can arrange to be in the company of people all of my same race almost all the time. If I need to move, I can be pretty certain of renting or buying a house in an area which I can afford and in which I would want to live. And I'm pretty sure that my neighbors at the new location would respond to me either neutrally or pleasantly. I can go shopping alone most of the time, pretty well assured that I'm not going to be harassed or followed. I can turn on the TV or open the front page of the newspaper and see people who look like me well represented. If I'm in a group and I'm the only white person in the group, I can be pretty sure that when I speak, I will be heard. If I'm in a group and there's only one person of color in that group, I can decide whether or not to listen to them. I can listen casually or I can listen with attention, and there will be no penalty to me for not listening with attention. I can swear, I can dress in secondhand clothes, I can chew with my mouth open, I can even stink, but nobody's going to attribute that to my race. If I do well, nobody's going to tell me I'm a credit to my race. If I'm in trouble and I ask to speak to the person in charge, I can be pretty sure that that person in charge is going to be my same race. I can bring up racism and want to talk about it without seeing, being seen as having a chip on my shoulder. If I am, have low credibility as a leader, I can be pretty sure it's not because of my race. I will feel welcomed and normal 
in the usual walks of public life, institutional and social. These are her privileges as a straight white woman. She talks about her whiteness as giving her this invisible backpack full of visas, codes, helpful hints, and maps that she can pull out when she needs them. If you want to just notice the kinds of gifts that your skin color gives you, that would be a fun mm, exercise. I like this guy named John Scalzi. He writes a blog called Whatever, and um, he's a science fiction fantasy author. And he wrote this explanation, and it really it just blew up his blog, which means that lots of people commented and shared. I will, I will translate for those of you who are not internet um, obsessed. So that means lots of people commented and shared his blog. And he talks in gaming terms. So again, I apologize to those of you who are not gamers. Um, I am not also a gamer. I like just like popping bubbles. I don't go and, you know, create characters. <laughs> That's pretty vegetative what I do. Um, but he says, I'm going to explain it to you like this. Dudes. Imagine life here in the U.S., or indeed pretty much anywhere in the Western world, as a massive role-playing game, like World of Warcraft, only appallingly mundane, where most quests involve the acquisition of money, cell phones, and donuts, although not always at the same time. Let's call it the real world. You've installed the real world on your computer, and you're about to start playing... First, you go to the settings tab to bind your keys and fiddle with your defaults and choose the difficulty setting for the game. You got it? All right. He said, okay. In the role-playing game known as the real world, straight white male is the lowest difficulty setting there is. This means, again, this is not for you to feel guilty. Just see what you think. This means that the default behaviors for almost all the non-player characters in the game are easier on you than they would be otherwise. The default barriers for completions of quests are lower. Your leveling up thresholds come more quickly. You automatically gain entry to some parts of the map that others would have to work for. The game is easier to play automatically, and when you need help, by default, it's easier to get. So once you've selected the straight white male difficulty setting... You still have to create a character, and you still get assigned points in certain character qualities by the computer. So if you have very low wealth points, you're still in trouble. And it's very easy to lose, even on this lower difficulty setting, depending on the points that you were, that you were assigned by the computer. He said, and other people with uh, harder difficulty settings are going to win sometimes just because they got more wealth points or they got charisma points or they got beauty points um, and they played better, maybe. So you don't automatically win, even if you have the lowest difficulty setting. But still, leveling up, getting access to different parts of the map, it's still easier for you. Okay, he says, you can still lose playing on the lowest difficulty setting 
But the lowest difficulty setting is still the easiest setting to win on. But the player who plays on the gay minority female setting, hardcore. That's one way of understanding it or starting a conversation about beginning to understand it. Because it's really hard to understand. And whenever I talk about racism, I always say this thing that most people always say, is that everybody's got racism in their culture. I mean, um, the Japanese folks hate the Korean folks, and the northern Italians hate the southern Italians, and, um, you know, the, the Hutus hate the Tutsis, the Czechs hate the Slovaks. You've got all of this, but you don't always have the group that is otherizing or um, oppressing one a whole group of people. You don't always have that group having the power to create a whole society that is built over time to reward the people who were at the top when it was beginning. You don't always have the schools, the economy, the banks, the housing market, the 40 acres and a mule, the uh, who has to leave their land, who gets um, fooled by the robber barons, etc. You don't have all of that automatically kind of making the European white people continue in power over generations. But that's what we have in America. So even though there's racism in everybody, there's not always the power that goes with that to create a whole society that's built on keeping the status quo, keeping the power where it is. So, um, and you could see with the election of our first African-American president... Um, you can see the furor that that arouses that seems non-rational and it seems, to, at least to me, part of it seems to be unconnected to what he does. It seems to be a lot about who he is. So... Um, I think if, if the whole society has been created since its beginning to hold certain people down or make it difficult for them to achieve power and to naturally default the power to people like me, um, it's, it's enough to lead me into wanting to give up because I just I can't grasp it. And I don't think I could change it. So I feel despairing. And then I hear Dr. Martin Luther King's speech where he says, out of a mountain of despair, let us carve a stone of hope. And I think, okay, a stone, I can do that. Just a little stone. It's out of the same mountain as despair, you know? So I think, what is the same material as this mountain? It's like... So you see how things could be, and you see how things are, and that's what makes despair. But it also makes hope. You see how things could be. You see how things are. You can also have hope. And he didn't say, out of a mountain of despair, you'll carve a little jewel of hope. No, it's just a stone, and just a stone. Easy to pick up, easy to lose, easy to pick up another one. 
Just a little stone of hope. And I think about my friend in the 12-step program whose sponsor gave her a glass bead. And she said, um, just whenever you're wanting a drink, you just put this in your mouth. And when it dissolves, you can have a drink. And I think, okay, you know, I can give up any time. I'll just put this little stone of hope in my mouth. And when it dissolves, then I can give up. So hold your stone of hope. But as Rita Mae Brown says, never hope more than you work. Never hope more than you work. Hold on. Be aware. And work. And don't forget to rest. Will you please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice? We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Be like a bird who, halting in its flight on a limb too slight, feels it give way beneath her, yet sing, sing. Knowing it has wings, yet sing, sing, knowing it has wings. Go in peace. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.